in a world where jobs are how most people make money. One man, one desire, one challenge dares to break the mold. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network, where we don't work for money. Money works for us. Coming soon, viewer discretion advised. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network, where cash flow is king. Real estate investing, the means, so you can enjoy your retirement dreams. This is the show where we cut right to the chase. No sales pitch, no long monologues, just simple how-to real estate investing advice, so you can earn the passive income you need to enjoy your retirement today. And now, your host and chief old dog, Bill Manacero. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network. I'm your host, Bill Manacero, and this is the show where 50-plusers and anyone else who wants to join us get solid, no-sales-pitch real estate investing advice to help generate real cash flow. This podcast airs twice weekly on Mondays and Fridays, and if you aren't already a subscriber, go to iTunes or Apple Podcast, type in Old Dogs, spelled D-A-W-G-S, find our podcast, and subscribe. Well, we have a great guest for you today. Uh, it's a gentleman who uh, has applied his technological thinking um, to real estate investing, of course, to, to make it easier to find those great deals. But uh, today's guest is Stephen Letkoff. And Stephen is the founder of Realty Quaint, a company that brings data-driven and quantitative techniques to the real estate industry. On a mission to add massive industry value through education, investment, technology, and analytics. A financial engineer turned multifamily investor, analytics speaker, and live webinar host, he holds a master's degree in financial engineering from Columbia University and during his finance career managed 90 billion dollars in derivatives uh, portfolio jointly with colleagues featured on multiple podcasts and webinar events including invest up best ever real estate show discovering multifamily etc he is the host of finance meets real estate webinar series well stefan welcome to the old dogs rei network thanks for having me bill pleasure to be here Oh, well, it's great to have you on. It uh, sounds like you have got some, some great stuff to share with us today. But before we get kind of jump into the nuts and bolts here, uh, maybe you could just give us a little bit of, about your background. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, so I'm Eastern European originally. So I came to the States at 22 for my master's. Um, like you mentioned, financial engineering. I had a career in finance for about a decade. And in the recent uh, few years, I've been a multifamily investor I live in New York City. I invest uh, in, in the New York City area as well. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Um, now, how did you get involved in real estate investing? Now, you sound like you were on sort of the engineer track there. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. That was kind of, um, you know, unexpected for me as well. Um, I purchased my first, like, 
fourplex, uh, older occupied fourplex, kind of like house hacking to like some of your audience who are acquainted with like bigger pockets, um, you know, that discusses that. So I kind of like lived in one unit, uh, was living like rent free in a way. And I liked the unit very much. I happened to like the house. So, so I thought it's, I liked it in terms of the returns, the leverage, um, and so forth. So, so I started, that's how I got into it by purchasing a primary residence. Now, was this in New York City? Uh, this was in New Jersey, uh, New Jersey, right by New York City, Hudson County, New Jersey. Ah, okay. And you just started started looking around, found a nice little fourplex, and decided to take the dive in the investment world, huh? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much, <laughs> kind of a mixed <laughs> occupancy and investment dive, I guess. But yeah, it worked out well, and I I was happy with it. Oh, that's. I like the, you know, the the asset from there. And you were self-managing it too? Yeah, I was uh, uh, owner-occupying and respectively self-managing, you know, the other units, like calling repairmen and things like that. Uh, Pretty pretty standard, really, in that sense. Sure. And and, uh, at some point, you decided to to grow it at that point to get get to acquire, uh, obviously, yeah, moving into multifamily. You're already in multifamily at the small multifamily, but uh, decided Mm to uh, expand from there. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So from there, I kind of started you know, writing my own scripts and kind of like using data to discover like different deals, um, to your point in the small multifamily space. So it would be like three, four, five, six unit properties like that. And, um, so I would kind of, you know, like I would just like write my scripts, I would pull like thousands of listings and kind of try to price them out on different criteria. Okay, you know, what are the ones that have the best, you know, like the best cap rates, which which ones have maybe some, uh, you know, some sort of discount to them potentially um, a little bit or or which ones. Then I started looking into condominium conversions, which is what I've been doing in the area as well. So, um, you know, sort of pulling data, you know, having like good um, condo estimates, multifamily estimates, looking for some spread on that end. But essentially the approach was, okay, we have... I have all the on-market and some off-market data. Can I utilize it and try to sort of trade the real estate market as um, we do in finance, in gotcha. a way? Gotcha. <laughs> and uh, so you, 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 you know, took sounds like uh, probably tapped into MLS as well as off-market. Uh, into did you get into sort of county records and that type of thing to find off-market? I did, yeah, absolutely, I did. Um, um, well, um, I mean, in the residential space, and I really do this because I've been recently switching to the commercial entirely, to the commercial field entirely. And and um, in the residential space, I would say that even on market, if one does it in this data-driven approach, one can find deals by simply pulling thousands of listings and looking at, let's say, the top 0.1% of them or something like that. So, so I had good success discovering deals that were undervalued, especially, you know, in some certain, I would say like to your, for your audience, I would say in areas where, you know, liquidity is a bit less, like, you know, let's say like places like upstate New York, you know, like deeper in New Jersey and things like that, you know, speaking of my area over here. And, um, and so I could, I was able to find like um, discounted deals where, yes, I would put the, put the county records, 
I would look at even like what the market value of the property is according to the tax authorities, you know, sort of like the, 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 the assessment times the equalization rate that the tax authority has. And, um, you know, and, and I was able to find like discounted deals in that way. Um, I was able to, I had a, a deal that was like a non-warrantable condo building. So it was like a small condominium building and I purchased it perfectly turnkey and I had, you know, like maybe 25% upside or or so by simply recognizing that, okay, I can find financing for it. I can, um, you know, it, it, I can find buyers that would be um, not overly concerned about the, the profile of it, et cetera. And, and, you know, so that, that was another strategy and condominium conversions uh, as well, pretty fairly turnkey. Um, I had a fourplex residential, which I turned into a commercial five unit and it sort of doubled the valuation. So it was really, my focus was always, okay, there's all the real estate players are kind of focusing on the renovation, the rehab aspects. Um, if I look like around New York City, what's of the deals would be, you know, like some of the hardest deals to purchase would be like a completely, you know, like a gut rehab project, right? So if it's a gut rehab project, you know, like within a day or something, there's going to be like 15 offers or something like that. And so I was thinking like, if instead I focus on where my advantage is, I could discover deals amongst more turnkey stuff. And really like, that's pretty much what I did. So I really did, um, largely turnkey or like sort of stabilized asset properties where I may improve them in addition, but it's kind of the inefficiency is there in SE's condition. I see. So um, you were, um, now were you flipping these properties or wholesaling them for the most part, or were you, uh, you know, buying them and uh, tenanting them up and, and managing them that way? Um, not wholesaling, but uh, yes, flipping on a sort of, you know, not with a, the, maybe the greatest urgency of, you know, that some flippers have, but but with the idea, yes, yes, to realize an equity gain on a period of, you know, between six months to two years, generally like a two years hold, something like that. Yeah, definitely. I, I kind of like that strategy too. To, on the fourplex, yeah. Obviously, if you add one more unit to it, it becomes a commercial property. Did you have to add on, or did you use existing square footage to make that fifth unit? Well, so to clarify again, like since I mentioned kind of like stabilized assets, um, so that was really um, all I did is I put like a smoke detector, you know, and fire extinguisher in that unit. It was just a unit that. It was in an extra um, efficiency studio apartment, mm -hmm. and they they just hadn't made it a legal unit. That's all. Oh, okay. So just converting what was already there for the most part, right? Yeah. So it was entirely a legal side kind of, you know, just calling up the town and working with the town officials to, oh, let's make it a legal unit. And from there, okay, now it's commercial. Go to the respective commercial lenders and, you know, get the valuation. That's all. Yeah, it was really a no, like no renovation work. Now, have you had to uh, do a number of renovations on, on on the properties you've acquired? No. So, like I said, I I I do cosmetic kind of renovations, but generally no. So I do seek equity gains. I do seek to flip them, um, but I do not. I tend to not 
kind of opt for the risk profile of um, extensive renovation. Okay, so just uh, you try to find it under market enough that you know you've already mm -hmm. you've already bought it, at, you know, with equity, and then you mm -hmm. just do some touch-ups just to maybe maximize uh, the return. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, purchased either purchased under market or just because perhaps um, you know there can be a restructuring that can be done. You know, like the case with the fourplex to a five unit, or like. Um, you know, the non-warrantable condominium building or like um, taking a multifamily and uh, converting it legally, splitting it into condominiums. Um, so, yeah, kind of like stabilized arbitrage strategies, I would call it something like this. So that's pretty much what I what I did so far, like in, in the New York City area. But but yeah, definitely so far no extensive renovation no it's always been like it's always been fairly stabilized and i've been able to realize an equity gain like that and how many properties have you uh, done like this uh, seven 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 kind so of just on the condo conversion so you would take an existing condo building um or uh, how, how many units generally would that be yeah, so the condo conversion, I mean, it can really apply to technically any number of units. But for what I was doing, it would be more like a three-family, ideally, or four. Okay. And, so, yeah. And mm -hmm. to convert that to a, um, you know, a standard sort of uh, small multi, um, what would be the difference uh, on no, that? No, it would start as a multi-family. It would start oh, as a start multi multifamily. Okay. Yeah, so it would be, let's say... Um, let's say it's a three family and um, it costs maybe 800,000 or something like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, like try to make it into condominiums, perhaps do some renovation and try to raise it to, you know, maybe if it's a great project close to 1.2. Um, I mean, considering that there's going to be some renovation cost for to get this kind of nice um nice condo values, let's say, but but really looking for something where the, the inefficiency is there, even if one doesn't renovate. So it's kind of, let's say the three family, if, if simply it is separated, I'm looking for a situation where the separated condition, you know, kind of the parts are worth more than the whole, which is, it sounds super simple, it sounds trivial, but they do it with data because the, the reality is when when I start pulling like what's of those condo conversion projects, the reality is that most of them would not meet those criteria. Or simply there is a situation that condition is like really, you know, kind of needs plenty of work. And, and when you look at, you know, like the real renovation work there, et cetera, or there isn't a genuine spread, you know, it's more like just optics perhaps. Um, so it does sound very, very simple once you have a project that works. Right, right. To find one actually takes takes some work, and uh, you know, typically I would you know go view them in person, and it's you know the ninety nine percent of things don't don't really work for that. But um, but yeah, once it does, then it becomes fairly easy to implement because on the conversions, at least in um, in my area, um, I feel like are not so utilized by investors, and. Uh, and they seem to feel some uncertainty as to whether the conversion is going to happen. And then, well, the reality is from speaking to attorneys is conversions in, in, in themselves, like by themselves are like nearly a certainty in that there, there's no, 
you know, there are no special requirements for that to happen as long as if you want to do it, as long as, um, you know, the multifamily is all compliant with all rules, et cetera, it's, it's, it's going to happen. So, so it's a fairly low risk kind of endeavor in comparison to other, you know, kind of like land subdivisions and things like that, which are fairly complex. Right. Well, yeah. with the what separates what's the difference between a, a condo and a mm-hmm. multifamily? What do you have to do to that property to make it into a condo? Right. I mean, it's just legal side work. Um, so the legal side work is really setting up the HOA, um, like the condo association. What what the HOA fee is going to be, like. Um, putting in the condo association like by, bylaws and um, I guess master deed and what would be the different um, you know conditions and requirements for usage of the common area, how the common area is exactly separated, um, things like that. So you just do the the paperwork and then basically sell it as a condo. Um, mm-hmm. You don't actually end up managing the HOA or anything of that. Uh, well, in the meantime, like, you know, in the meantime, uh, while the units are selling, you're sort of in a posi- position of responsibility in terms of in terms of the HOA. But uh, but, yeah, really with the go to to sell the units. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Well, you know, what what's fascinating about this is one, you know, not so much. You know, yeah, you you buy some some good properties, buy them under market in this inflated market that you can do this. And I would assume it's because you've got this this software that is just um, you know data mining, data scraping, whatever you might be doing to give right. you these thousands of potential properties, and then presenting you with um, and I guess you maybe generate a report or something where the, mm-hmm. the sort of the the best yeah. rises to the top right correct um, yeah. mm-hmm. now are you doing this full time i am yeah yeah i'm doing it full time um and i also um like you mentioned at the beginning i run a company called rio de quant mm-hmm. um where it's sort of my mission is to um build different data-driven tools um, analytics for the real estate industry to sort of help other investors and, you know, help other people make better business decisions. So someone could go to realtycoin.com and look at, um, in other words, sign up for the service and have access to thousands of, uh, you know, potential properties in their areas, not necessarily New York or New Jersey, New Jersey. Um, no, specifically the, so this, uh, kind of like deal search, you mean the deal search, uh, so that I am actually currently putting in a project, uh, a product, um, that is for lead generation. So if your question is in terms of lead generation, I'm, uh, just putting a product that should be out perhaps next week, uh, which does commercial multifamily lead generation. And I can speak to that. That's actually a very interesting methodology there in terms of like finding because that's entirely off market Mm -hmm. and uh, it's on the commercial side but that's something that i'm putting as far as lead generation Um, i do not do the residential as a product in that sense i teach a course though i teach a course on data-driven real estate investing with python where um, you know people can learn uh, you know how to do it and i can guide them basically show them all, all my scripts 
I show them how exactly I do it. I show them all my models for residential on market, commercial off market. I show them how to do automated valuation models, which is like zero's estimate to price houses automatically. Uh, I show them different components of automated underwriting, for example, condition scoring. Condition scoring is a very interesting technology. There is a company in New York uh, called Foxy AI. I'm not associated with them. But they seem to be the leader in property condition scoring, which means uh, on the visual side, which means like uh, taking in images and uh, processing, you know, like kind of giving a score of what the condition um, to those images is, you know, it, let's say it's a one if it's a perfect condition, five if it's a complete, it needs complete renovation, for example. So, so that and and that's done via um, on the textual side. It's done via natural language processing models. So, that's one thing also I um, teach in that course. And um, on the the visual side, uh, it's really computer vision models. So, it, so it's really machine learning applications. But but the end goal is. Okay, what's holding us from automated underwriting? If we want to underwrite, at least in a preliminary sense, it's not to say that oh, we're going to rely on this in a in a way that's going to increase our risk or something. No, it's more like in a preliminary sense. If you want to underwrite thousands of either residential or commercial commercial properties, um, what's holding us from really doing that so that we don't have to hire extensive teams to do it for us? It's you know condition, visuals, reading images, um, you know, reading textual descriptions is, is a big, uh, is a big factor. Um, so, so those are like, yeah, those are some things, some things they talk about there and a little bit of blockchain as well, like a little bit like real estate tokenization, like how to set up your own uh, kind of security token, uh, you know, it's kind of like how to write up your code and publish it on the, on the blockchain, on the Ethereum network or other network. Oh, great. So would you say that people that would use Real, uh, Realty Quant, they'd have to have some sort of technical background? Well, for the course, I would, yes, the course is a little technical, I agree. Um, I've looked into, um, only for the course, only for the course. So I've looked into kind of making it with more like no-code um, tools. Um, I'm still working on that to make it more accessible to a broader audience, Um you know, um, so so that is that is my kind of next phase and like next steps. But the current one is yeah, it's a little bit geared towards um, you know somewhat technical folks or who may be willing to learn a little bit of Python. You know, since Python kind of has gained, it's more like indeed. Um, I would say the younger crowd in that sense. I uh, admittedly. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yes. Python is the is the 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 software that um, they utilize the programming software. Yes, Python is the the programming language that I utilize for that. Uh, but as far as other tools, like um, so, one thing that 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 we do um, at Realty Quant is uh, which would be very useful to also passive investors in your audience or active investors on the market selection side is. So I did uh, studies like regression-based studies of market valuation. So trying to gauge uh, if different real estate markets are overvalued. And I have this for uh, 2,700 US counties. And it's published at realtyquant.com. Um, and it is really market data reports um, that it's a lifetime that one can subscribe to that are offer like a lifetime sort of lifetime free updates, really. So once they join our email list, they will just 
be constantly, um, you know, on a quarterly basis, that is, um, updated on where um, uh, real estate markets in their state are, are going in terms of market valuation. And what I mean is in the sense, if, for example, Atlanta, Georgia is fairly valued now, it would really be a subscription where they would get quarterly updates of how that's evolving over time, you know, let's say now with inflation and so forth. Um, so, if, for example, if it's, uh, you know, if market valuation is, let's say, at 5%, slightly overvalued or fairly valued, you know, they would be able to, they're able to actually track this as it evolves and see the full history and, and so forth. And, and this is a very statistical predictive measure, actually, which um, uh, worked uh, to predict the downturns post the global financial crisis in their magnitude to, like, very high correlation at the state level. And that's, um, you know, some people are, get surprised at how to say like this kind of finance theory and, you know, being able to predict something. There is a lot of skepticism, I feel, but it's really to understand what's being predicted there is merely an overvalued component. It's not, um, there's no prediction as to timing. There's no prediction as to what exactly caused that overvaluation, be it, you know, like the whole, let's say, like mortgage-backed securities development, you know, before 2000, before the global financial crisis or, um, or so forth. But all that it's doing is, it's real estate is a fundamental asset. It's driven by income, population, and housing supply. And what I've seen, at least in the data, is that deviations versus a moving average window of fundamentals such as let's say 20 years and how fundamentals have been and kind of this shifting with quarter by quarter shifting with time. And so deviation from that was highly correlated to the downturns post global financial crisis. And, and so that is something that some of your audience uh, may enjoy. I've got a lot of kind of traction and, you know, interest in, oh, is this real estate market overvalued, you know, like things like that. And it's been like really very easy for me to build, like in terms of it's not the most technical thing. It's a, it's really a linear regression and you get, I don't know, I feel like I have benefited in my own investment uh, process so much from it because it's simply, uh, you, you know, something that tells me with some some degree of certainty, you know, some degree of confidence, you know, whether whether the market that I'm investing is overvalued, you know, like, and it just gives me a perspective of not worrying and, um, you know, having business continuity. And it just makes you a competent investor on the market side. It's really what people like Warren Buffett were doing in the past. And, and if one thinks about it, the real estate is something like, where in the stock market, it's so hard to predict valuation, right? The stock market is driven by the big five technology stocks in its changes, in its changes currently. And so who knows what they're worth, right? It's complicated to know valuation on, on the stock market side. But if we had something in the stock market like the stocks of utilities companies, let's say, now that's not hard to predict. And that is pretty much our situation real estate. So it's, I feel like, I feel extremely fortunate to work in this industry where, you know, the analytics that I do actually, you know, actually work. Now, how many uh, do, do you zero in on key MSA areas? Uh, how, what what uh, demographic, geographic areas? Oh, 
No, it's really, so what I, uh, so this study, so it can be done at zip codes level as well. I've really done it for every U.S. county. Every U.S. county? Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have it. So at realtycon.com, there is like market valuations data for, you know, close to 3,000 counties, basically. So it's really going to tell you, um, let's say, the state of uh, Indiana is, um, let's say, valued at, let's say, plus 2%. Just I'm making up the numbers. And then maybe Indianapolis and various other markets in Indiana. And it's it's proxied by the, by the county level, but it has like all the cities and so forth, you know, or let's say maybe a little bit more overvalued at 8% or something like that. So it's just going to give you like, where valuations are, what price performance has been relative to those valuations. And it has some autocorrelation kind of momentum measures. It shows like autocorrelation where autocorrelation is just like correlation of like, let's say this year price performance versus last year price performance. It's just a, a measure of trend and momentum and because many um for the on the appreciation side because many u.s markets are really um autocorrelate for example I, uh, the state of florida depending on data set in like federal reserve bank of st louis data set had like about 77 percent autocorrelation which is pretty high so basically like historical prices sort of predicting you know future prices but you know like 77 percent of last year performance you know, to be this year in terms of correlation. And so, and so that's, um, that's another thing that is there, but, but yeah, I feel the biggest value is really, um, uh, which markets are overvalued and that worked uh, pretty well, uh, like I mentioned for the global financial crisis. So the states, um, that dropped the most at the time, which were Arizona, California, Nevada, and Florida, uh, which dropped like 40, 50%, uh, their valuation was, was in line with that. So they were like, you know, like, 40 to well to 40 to 60 depending on the data set um overvalued and then the states which didn't drop um at all almost or very little which was for example the state of texas at the time was five percent undervalued and it only dropped four percent and and in fact like all like 10 u.s states at the time which were undervalued they dropped an average of four percent only and the state of North Dakota dropped zero, in fact. It just basically stayed flat. Um, and that was quite impressive. And I was trying to understand, like, what drove that. And then I had, because um, I, I have a host a webinar, and I had um, Vinny Chopra uh, at my webinar. And he, he shared, oh, he shared I did my first uh, multifamily syndication deal, and I purchased it in 2008. And it had this very high IRR very high internal rate of return after this. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. So apparently it was a very good project that he selected, but, um, but well, okay, that's actually, that actually makes sense because he purchased it in Texas and it was a specific market in Texas and it was, um, you know, Texas was undervalued at the time. And so he, he, his property didn't decrease in value. It had no, um, you know, no, uh, depreciation whatsoever after the global financial crisis and so that was very interesting and so i did a similar you know kind of similar study now and um i have i mean mean i have the similar data now and it evolves it keeps changing you know (laughs) it's quite different um you know since the second and third quarter of last year 
it's quite different than it was before. Because mm. I used to, yeah. So I went to some events before and I would say, okay, US real estate is fairly valued. And that was consistent with other studies by other people, by the way. There is one done at, um, more recently at uh, Florida Atlantic University. And then um, there is a study um, by Bloomberg Economics by uh, Niraj Shah uh, is the name of the economist there. So the Bloomberg Economics study, they used to publish it since 2019. And they, the last, last they published it the first quarter of 2021. And they shared various countries being uh, very overvalued, but US being fairly valued. So they had Canada very overvalued and um, Scandinavia, like countries in Scandinavia and um, Australia, New Zealand, and a little bit to some extent, the United Kingdom to a lesser extent. Um, and, but then U.S. was actually fairly valued. And that was kind of the intuition of most investors as well, you know, where we didn't feel, OK, it's a crazy bubble or something like that. Um, and so. So this nevertheless changed. And um, so I kept tracking. So I started the first time I started doing this was the beginning of COVID. So it was in um, March or like April of 2020. And the, the sheer reason to do it was I just wanted to understand like my downside risk as an investor. But when I did it, I computed the whole history of market valuations like back for like 45 years. Wow. And uh, yeah, so it's really like has really historical data to it. And that's at realtycon.com. Like I said, it's all published, you know, and, you know, anyone can really get it. It's pretty cheap as well. And so I was even kind of like a little bit lazy to update some of those measures for my own usage initially, like before having it as a product, since I felt, oh, it's always the same. So, for example, the states of Florida and Texas were staying like for about four years. So between 2017 and 2021, they were in the 8 to 10% slightly overvalued range. So Florida and Texas, again, like to your audience, um, as they may know, you know, are the big booming markets for, for multifamily and really real estate, this market cycle. And then, of course, all the other Western markets and Southern markets, um, well, all the other Western markets as well. Um, but really the big ones, you know, where all big multifamily investors go and, um, but they were not super overvalued. They were like eight to 10% and this percentage every quarter, you know, it moves a little bit, moves a little bit, but it's really in this range. And so in the second and third quarter of 2021, these numbers kind of doubled. And um, at the end of um, 2020, the only sharply overvalued state that, that, was, that I was seeing in this analysis was the state of Idaho at 25% overvalued. And I was going to different events and I was speaking about Boise in Idaho being, you know, the most overvalued city in, in the country. And, um, and so Idaho was kind of the only, you know, sort of in bubble territory code. And yeah, and so Idaho... Um, jumped uh, to from 25 up to like 47% overvalued at the end wow. of uh, quarter three of last year. But again, it's the majority of states are not overvalued. They're in, in fact, if we take the Midwest and Northeast, they're even undervalued. And again, being undervalued, it's not your, this is not an appreciation predictor. It's 
only a, only a downside predictor, um, but but certain yeah, but certain states and uh, and markets to the west uh, appears started to enter bubble territory for the first time last year. So that's I mean those are the first signs of it. Again, does it mean um, if we take before 2007, so U.S. real estate was very fairly valued in 2002. Then uh, between 2003 and 2005, over the course of just two years, it went to very overvalued. And then the bubble burst in 2007 only. And so it kind of took four years since really the first indications of a bubble. So, so what I did like at my, like at my kind of like educational series, I just shared, okay, now it appears that's at least in my day, the, the second and third quarter of last year does appear to be the first indications of a bubble, primarily in Western markets. But again, that's just, um, you know, that's just the first indication said, oh, where it just wasn't the bubble before. And so it can take, uh, you know, maybe it's going to take four years, maybe it's going to take less, maybe it's going to take more. I do not know. I have no, no senses for timing, but it's just a measure of downside risk for people to have. It's not, again, like some of those Western markets, and those are really like the, I would say, so Idaho, Arizona, Nevada, um, Utah, and um, and Colorado are the five uh, states that are, let's say, above more over 20% overvalued, uh, it seems, in this measure. Um, you know, so... So those are extremely strong markets, you know, those are markets that are booming. So, so again, but it just happens to be that they have at this moment now, especially with inflation and, and, and that's like a, where I feel like it's a, have, have essentially gone a little bit too much, you know, so it seems relative to their fundamentals, because one thing to keep in mind about inflation, I feel people talk about, um, you know, the benefits of inflation to hard earned, uh, to hard, sorry, to hard assets. And so, that is uh, true that the hard assets benefit from inflation. But there is a consideration, though. What if, uh, and that's if asset inflation exceeds wage inflation, then that's going to give you downside risk afterwards. Right. And so that's what happened in some of the Western markets in the second and third quarter of 2020, notably Arizona, uh, for example, uh, where you know, the prices appreciated in the first half of the year substantially at the state level, I believe about 17%. And then incomes increased by just 1% at that time. And then again, I, I hope I'm actually curious to see how this data evolves. I hope that maybe wage inflation catches up a bit and some of that, um, you know, some of that kind of um, wears off or becomes a little bit milder. So I do hope for that. But, but again, I mean, the majority of markets in the States are not overvalued, but there are some to the West and a little bit to the South. The strong markets showed first indication of that um, last year. And th that is what I see. I believe it's statistical va statistically valid because, again, like I said, these are measures at the state level. So these are very big land masses. They're very, you know, like they're price deviations, like I said, above fundamentals were 85% correlated really to the downturn supposed to go financial crisis. They're not very hard to predict, you know, those big land masses, so to say, right. <laughs> you know, it may sound funny, but because they're, they're very fundamental in there. It's, it's much harder to predict a small market 
And that's seen in correlation studies as well, and where the county data that we publish at RioTQuant, it's really the correlation at the county level was now was 75%, not 85%. So, I mean, 75 still sounds high, but it's actually much worse. You can see it in the data. It's not, you know, it's not, not so good. So, so it's much harder to predict small geographies. But, but yeah, if you have a big state like Florida or Texas or, you know, or something like that, and it deviates from its fundamentals, and, and if this deviation over the course of just one, two quarters kind of went to double the levels where it was at for, you know, a period of four years. Oh, you sure. know? Yeah, so it's kind of like that seemed to be statistically valid. But again, like just to kind of count people down since I'm, <laughs> I'm a pretty positive guy myself, <laughs> but I don't like you know, bringing kind of, um, you know, negative news. It's more like, um, you know, those are extremely strong markets. They're going to continue booming. So if you have like a market like Phoenix in Arizona, I mean, it's going to be booming. There is no question about that. It's just that simultaneously, this kind of measure is going to be your downside risk predictor once the cycle ends, once we reach a peak in the current cycle. And so it's just like a supplementary additional metric on the downside risk. It has no relevance to the appreciation that is still going to continue, even even if it's overvalued. And that's what happened before the global financial crisis as well, um, because markets are autocorrelated, like I mentioned. There is trend. So they will continue. They will continue to boom, um, but it's a downside uh, exposure to be aware of. Now, what markets would you say um, are, are, are you talking about those that are, that are inflated at this point? Um, what about markets where, you know, great deals could be had, where you can buy things way under value? Yes. Now, again, like just to clarify, um, on the, the undervalued markets, what is so to say a deal about them is that they carry very, very little downside risk exposure. So they're almost immune. So like I mentioned, um, the 10 states which were undervalued before the global financial crisis, they dropped an average of 4%. So we have like an event like the global financial crisis, which is the biggest you know, the, really the biggest um, downturn in U.S. real estate recorded price histories. And um, and so in spite of that, like undervalued states, um, you know, drop so little. So so it's really that's what is, so to say, a deal about those. It's not that they in being undervalued, they're going to experience, excuse me, a stronger appreciation after this. That's not the case. In fact, um, and they are expected to perhaps experience less than uh, than some of the more booming markets, which are now overvalued. Um, but it's just um, it's just that they are more protected. Now there are certain markets. If we take, for example, the state of Indiana, like if we speak broadly, um, is one example where prices have had healthy appreciation. So so in the state of Indiana. Um, uh, appreciation, this market cycle is like about 50 eight percent i believe since the last fair fair valuation so it has experienced healthy appreciation and nevertheless it is kind of fairly valued now it's at like plus four percent but but really fairly valued so so this is one example um you know it's really 
places in the Midwest and Northeast. It's markets which are not so strong, Bill. Unfortunately, right, right. <laughs> that is the current time of the of the cycle. And but but there are exceptions. You know, for example, at the beginning of COVID, I spoke about it back then. Denver, Colorado was top five booming city in, by price appreciation. And in fact, Denver was actually fairly valued. Now it already went a bit overvalued, I believe by like 10, 12 percent. Uh, but um, but Denver at the time was, was a booming city, top five. And nevertheless, it was fairly valued. And so, so that happens, that happens. Um, it's just, um, it's just having this kind of extra measure and um, and comparing and, and so forth. But really at the moment is, let's say for my own investment, I kind of looked at since I'm working at some commercial multifamily um, myself. And so I'm working at places like Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, you know, things like that. And I mean, there can be, I'm considering to do like another round of um, kind of direct to owner <laughs> campaigns in uh, in some of the southern states like Georgia and Florida. It's just that I do have the market valuations and I do track them. So I feel like if I pick a project that has a very, sh that kind of aims to be like a two year hold or something like that, like a quicker, a quicker um, thing, it, it could work since real estate is not so quick to, you know, completely collapse. And even after the global financial crisis, it wasn't that quick. And so, um, so it, it kind of took a long time for prices to really uh, drop. Um, it took about four years, four years and a quarter, in fact, for prices to reach to their complete bottom after the global financial crisis. Now, about 25% of that decline happened in the first year. So this is a risk to, to have. But so, so again, like for me, it's really, okay, can I have a shorter term uh, play in some of the southern markets or, you know, in places like Florida and Texas? Or can I, um, you know, take a longer term position in just places like Indiana and Kentucky and then um, really avoid uh, Idaho, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, Colorado altogether? Right. Well, you know, we're kind of zipping by on our time here. I, I want to be able to get uh, just a, a few more things in here. One of the things that, you know, our audience are, are folks 50 years of age and, and older. They're, uh, some are approaching mm -hmm. retirement, some are in retirement. They're looking at real estate investing as a means to help them um, in their retirement. Um, how could Realty Quant, how can it help those folks um, as a resource as they're um, looking ahead at uh, having real estate uh, be a means to uh, generate additional cash flow? So how can Realty Quant help them? Uh, you mean, Bill, in this sense? Yes. Um, so... Uh, I think market, like what we had a discussion now in market selection, that's going to be very valuable to them in trying to reach their retirement goals and having downside protection. I think this is extremely useful. Um, you know, we've seen like people who did so well before the global financial crisis then was um, nearly older and net, net worth, in fact, after that. And that was that was some, um, you know, for some of the very leading um, you know, real estate investors at the time uh, was true. You know, since you're levered and you kind of um, you're you're kind of stretched like that, and you you realize certain equity gain, and then at the downturn, it on paper, it, at some point, it would be could be that you know you sort of lost it all. And so this is um, you know this is a risk, and and so I think like having this kind of market selection that is very robust, 
it's definitely very helpful. Um, now the data-driven techniques, like some of them, some of them are like more active and so forth. But I would say if people want to invest, if like some of your audience, um, they want to invest that's in commercial assets and they're more active, um, one thing that helps a lot is um, on the data-driven side is um, utilizing rental listings information, rental listings data. So that's what another thing that I've been doing, like I mentioned the lead generation, patriotic want for commercial. So what it really does is to utilize various data points online in terms of rental information on, on those assets, on those commercial assets, and try to infer which assets are the ones that have the most value add. So, and that can go like pretty far in in terms of um, not only finding commercial multifamily um, that is undervalued uh, in, ter in terms of its rents, where rents are below market, but also really looking to their other income components, like what fees those buildings are charging, administrative, um, you know, pet fees, et cetera, et cetera, as well as, um, as well as what utilities they're charging, what seems to be their occupancy rate. And um, and so so this is um, for more active, I would say, investors over 50 who are looking at the commercial assets. This is a methodology that can benefit them a lot. And so, like I said, like perhaps sometime next week or the week after, there should be live like a lead generation product for that that can help them. It's literally going to tell them in like, top US markets, like these are some of the commercial buildings that that show promise, you know, that show based on their, um, you know, various data points studied online, you know, that seems, those seem to be the buildings that show the most potential to raise their appraisal, you know, to raise their value, which is what um, a commercial investor is after. And so, so, so that is another thing. Ah, that's great. That's great. Wow. Um, and uh, in terms of your business, uh, where, 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 what excites you about the future of your business and where it's going? Yeah. So what excites me is, uh, I mean, really data-driven developments, building out new models, building out new tools, um, but also uh, blockchain, really, really blockchain. So that's, a, I feel, for your audience as well. Um, I mean, that is a direction that I want to take in my own investment, which is um, a big reason why uh, I started switching to commercial assets entirely. And like I mentioned, like looking for uh, commercial multifamily in Indiana, Kentucky and other places right now. Um, so it's really blockchain, um, I believe, is very exciting. Um, the reason is it's not just liquidity. It's also if we think of the real estate industry as a, as a type of private equity and we know that in real estate, there are deals to be had, so to say, on the passive investor mm -hmm. side. So to some of your investors who now would go and they would build rela relationships with operators and um, they would invest passively with them, um, I believe blockchain is going to open doors because it's really um, decentralized finance. And it's really um, some of that some of the, those investments in um, various operators, sort of mid-range commercial real estate projects would be tokenized, but not just at the asset level tokenized, which okay, adds a little bit of liquidity to the project because you can sell your tokens at a secondary exchange, et cetera. But it's really um, building up the ecosystem of blockchain tokens that perhaps represent various sectors, you know, that may represent the self-storage sector or the retail 
or multifamily sectors, etc. And um, so, so, and where that's all private equity, where that can be selected in terms of like selecting very good operators, very good deals, and so forth. Um, where it can be perhaps done better than it's currently done with real estate investment trusts. And I think that is very exciting. Oh, that, that sounds like it. I, 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 that's something I definitely want to track. I, I, that that would be amazing for the passive investors to have that kind of uh, access and um, you know the evaluation tool as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Bill. That's great. Well, we uh, our time has just zipped by. Uh, you had su- such great stuff to add there. We do this uh, little session uh, at the back end of our show. It's called Wrap It Up. And I ask you a series of quick questions, and you uh, give me quick answers in terms of uh, resources that have been of value to you. Uh, if you're ready, we can go ahead and wrap it up. Sounds good. All right. Uh, favorite real estate book? Favorite real estate book, uh, best ever apartment syndication book. Oh, that is great by Joe uh, Fairless. Yeah. Uh, how about just a general business book? Uh, the richest man in uh, bigger pockets. Uh, favorite app? YouTube. Favorite quote? Uh, <laughs> it's a long one. <laughs> We're intellectually the superficial reflection of what we have learned and taught. That's oh, my favorite. And quote. who gave that quote? Uh, it's a secret. Oh, Somebody oh, okay. Else. <laughs> okay. I hope we will be able to copy it exactly. And yeah. final question: If you lost all your assets and you had to rebuild your business, uh, and you only had a thousand dollars in cash, what would you do with that one thousand to relaunch your business? Well, I would use my investment manager knowledge and use other people's money. There you go. Use the thousand dollars to take those guys to lunch, right? (laughs) Yep. All right. Well, uh, man, this has been great. Sorry, we had to zip down. We're backed up against another hour here, and we have interviews all day here. It's a little crazy, so sorry about that. But uh, um, how can people reach you and find out more about you and your and your uh, your services you provide? Yeah, so they can reach me at www.riotikwon.com. I also have a YouTube channel, Finance Meets Real Estate on YouTube. Excellent. Well, Stefan, this has been great. We have a tradition here uh, for our guests that we are called the Old Dogs REI Network. So we like our guests to close us out with their best old hound dog sort of wolf howl <laughs> okay you're from hungry you know they have all kinds of yeah, wolves and yeah, stuff right yeah <laughs> so go ahead and, and give us your best howl Woohoo! <laughs> okay <laughs> that's great well thank you again stefan it has been great uh, great talking to you some good information and a great resource i am going to be all over that site especially uh with some of the market stuff you were mentioning as well i think it sounds like a great resource Great talking to you as well. Thank you, Bill. All right. You take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for visiting the Old Dogs REI Network. We would greatly appreciate if you would stop by iTunes and let us know what you think of the show. We would love if you could subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star rating, and write a review. The more ratings and reviews we receive, the more visible the podcast will be to others. Thank you.